not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Just another easy text on another easy day, huh? Why don't we pray together as we come and rest before the goodness of God's word and sometimes just approach and trust that there's more here than we may indeed see at first blush, okay? Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for who you are. As Aaliyah prayed, Father, you are good and you are the foundation. Who you are and how you work in the world is abundantly consistent. And it's ever sacrificial and always pursuing us in the midst of our brokenness and within the context of our day. God, we thank you that you are not a mere idea that we can discount, but a person who is indeed reigning. And we thank you that you have spoken, not just once in a word that is irrelevant for our time, but once and for all in a word that comes with consistent relevancy for all time. And we thank you for the power of the Spirit that guides us both in the trust to listen and the discernment in how to listen. So God, would you guide us now? Would you guide me? Thank you for loving us first, loving us always, regardless of our stories, but in the midst of them as well. It is in Jesus' name we pray, and by the power of the Spirit, and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Well, it doesn't uh, need to be said, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, we all know that the Bible can be misused to support all kinds of things, can't it? Um, we can look at Nazi Germany, who misused the scriptures to support anti-Semitism, such that even on the belt buckles of many of the military, it read, God with us, with a framework of the church supporting as soldiers would march Jewish people to mass graves. We could look at Thomas Jefferson, one of our early presidents, who took a pair of scissors to his Bible and cut out all the miraculous in order to shape a more rational understanding of Jesus that fit within his ideals of the day. We could look at Satan, <laughs> Satan himself, who, when tempting Jesus in the midst of the wilderness, quoted scripture to Jesus out of context in order to seek to manipulate Jesus, not just to do 
bad things that were actually many times very good things, but in the wrong ways or the wrong time. The very temptation of the evil one to use God's word against God's ways. And today when we come to our passage, we find a passage that has also been deeply abused in maybe some of the most worst of ways. Howard Thurman, he was a Christian mystic and leader um, who had a radical framework for nonviolence. Many believe that Martin Luther King Jr. was deeply influenced by Howard Thurman and carried alongside of him not only his Bible, but a copy of Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. Howard Thurman specifically speaks of this particular text in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And I want us to step into his story for just a minute. So I'm going to read a little bit of a longer section here because I think it gives us a window into how this passage has been abused and really deeply misunderstood throughout the history of our context. He writes, During much of my boyhood, I was cared for by my grandmother, who was born a slave and lived until the Civil War on a plantation near Madison, Florida. My regular chore was to do all of the reading for my grandmother. She could neither read nor write. Two or three times a week, I read the Bible aloud to her. I was deeply impressed by the fact that she was most particular about the choice of Scripture. For instance, I, write, I might read many of the more devotional Psalms, some of Isaiah, the Gospels again and again, but the Pauline epistles never, except at long intervals, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. My curiosity knew new bounds, but we did not question her about anything. When I was older and was halfway through college, I chanced to be spending a few days at home near the end of summer vacation. With a feeling of great temetry, temeritry, there we go, I asked her one day why it was that she would not let me read any of the Pauline letters. What she told me I shall never forget. During the days of slavery, she said, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. Old man McGee was so mean that he would not let a Negro minister preach to his slaves. Always the white minister used as his text something from Paul. At least three or four times a year he used as a text, Slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters, dot, 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 as unto Christ. Then he would go on to show how it was God's will that we were slaves. And how... If we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. Since that fateful day on the front porch in Florida, I've been working on the problem her words presented. What Howard Thurman represents here and communicates in the history of our context is indeed a problem. Because to hear the passage read, I'm almost certain no one in here was like, oh, this is great news, right? Oh, yes, I can't wait to see how this applies to me. Instead, you were all wondering, dance, pastor, right? <laughs> Let's see it. Let's figure this out together. And I don't blame you. It's hard to imagine how this was good news in the first century or how it's actually good news for us today. And for many it's bred great distrust when you come to the Bible because if we can't believe this, how can we believe anything? And maybe even set you on a trajectory of deconstruction of your faith. So how do we go about reconstructing faith? 
Well, I believe that as we come to understand this text, we're going to see something pretty radical from the Apostle Paul. We're going to see how he enters the very context of the first century and what he has to say here and elsewhere begins to plant the seeds of the abolition of slavery and the empowerment of everyone who follows Jesus and empowering them either with power from below or power from above with hope and dignity, no matter their context. But in order to do that, we need to go back in time. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 5. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Now, what I'm going to name is what we all want to hear when we come to this passage. What we all want to hear, especially in our context, is slavery's over. Throw a great revolution. Like, that's what we want to hear from the Apostle Paul, right? When you read this, it kind of is shocking that he doesn't say that. And, and honestly, there is a creational intent that we're tapping into. There is a design. When God made human beings, male and female, at the very beginning of creation, at the very beginning of history, they were made free unto God in the garden. We were not designed to be owned by other human beings. So there's something good and true and biblical about that desire. That's what we want the Apostle Paul to say, to be blatant, to be explicit, it's also important to know what the Apostle Paul is not saying that some have misconstrued him to say. He's not saying that slavery is necessary or good. We do not see that here in this text, as if this is a part of society writ large forever. That is not what the Apostle Paul says here. Actually, contrary to the fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can just jot this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, the Apostle Paul does some extraordinary work talking about different vocations or callings. And he says, for those of you where you are, remain in that calling. If you're married, remain married, okay? Don't try to get out of your marriage in order to have a liberated singleness unto Jesus. If you're single, remain single. And this is where he goes, I wish you were all single like I was, right? He has a high viewpoint on the beauty of singleness and marriage. If you're circumcised, stay circumcised. If you're uncircumcised, stay uncircumcised. Stay where you are, except when he gets to the slave. And he says, listen, if you are enslaved, verse 21 is where he kind of specifically leans in. He goes, you're already free in Jesus. <laughs> he goes, but if you can obtain your freedom, do so. A change in vocation. That does not sound like someone who says, stay in your place when it comes to slavery. It's a misconstrual of the Apostle Paul's goals, purposes, and understanding of the gospel. You see, the Apostle Paul is in a first century world where slavery is, period. If you want to think of the broader biblical narrative, we often talk about that here at Christ Community as the four-chapter story. Ought, is, can, and will. The very beginning, God's creational intent and his design in the midst of his good world before sin enters in. And then there is what is, a broken, fragmented world that shapes every aspect of our experience. And then there's what can be in Jesus. And then there's what will be when he returns and finally brings a restoration to all that he's designed creation to be. The Apostle Paul is not condoning slavery. He's pastoring people where they are. He's, he's stepping into a world where slavery is. 
period. Not that it ought to be, not that this is good, not that this is necessary, but it's a description of their context. You see, we need to understand that on the most conservative of numbers, a third of the Roman Empire was slaves, either slaves, people who were captured in the midst of military conquest, or people who were called bond servants, but were still considered slaves, and that they got into deep debt, and so then sold themselves to pay off that debt in the midst of dynamics in their family life. And the Apostle Paul, don't forget this, he's imprisoned while he's writing this letter. We can so easily come to this text and strip away all the context. But think about this. He's imprisoned. He lives in a dictatorship where the known ruler of the world is considered to be a god by many and who is opposed to the Messiah Jesus. He has little to no power to bring structural change. The only hope he can do at this particular point in time is to empower people where they are. And at the same time, he still says, if you can get your freedom, get it, do that. So what does he say here? What is his tactic? How does he go about displaying how the gospel really does have something powerful? The good news of what God has done in Christ actually has an impact even here in what is in the midst of so much brokenness. And frankly, what he says is really radical, and it's ingenious. I mean, the more I study the Apostle Paul, the more I don't find someone stuck in his context, someone who's behind the times, someone who doesn't get Jesus, the more I study the Apostle Paul and get down to the nitty-gritty, I see a deeper alignment, a deeper union with Jesus, a deeper understanding and brilliance in navigating the brokenness of the world. And this is what he has to say. Every Christian is a slave to Christ. That's where he goes. Every Christian is a slave to Christ. Now, that really chafes against our cultural situation, right? Because you, you might be thinking, well, Gabe, we just sing, hallelujah, I'm free. Yes. But what we often think of freedom and what the gospel presents as freedom are categorically different. We think of absolute negative freedom, meaning I am free from my sin and now from Jesus to do what I want when I want as long as I want. And that is not the freedom we are given in Christ. Instead, we are freed unto Jesus to serve him and to find deep delight and who we were made to be as his. You see this across Ephesians. Again and again, Jesus is called Lord. Right there at chapter 1, verse 2. If you just turn your Bibles, we see verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Curios, Master, Lord Jesus Christ. And this echoing over and over and over throughout our brilliant letter here of Jesus as Lord, not just someone who saves me from pain, but actually guides me into the life I've been designed to live that may still incur suffering as we pick up our cross and follow him. And so we step in the midst, the final section here of the household code. We've been talking about that over the past couple of weeks. The household code has so far has three sections and the household code was a common literary framework used by politicians and philosophers to set out a, an imaginary, a social imaginary, or a polit 
political framework of the common good or the flourishing society. And Aristotle was one of the most common, most, one of the most well-known, who stepped into the microdynamics of the household to portray the ideals and the values of a broader society that he believed would flourish if they followed these ideals. And the Apostle Paul steps in and he says, listen, and he already laid this out in chapter, chapter one, Jesus is seated on his throne in the highest realms of heaven. So what does it look like for a community where Jesus is Lord and he actually is calling his people to good and frees them unto service to him? What does it look like? And we've walked through how it's impacted marriage. We've walked through how it's impacted children and parents. And within the household, you have to understand too, it also impacts commerce, okay? A lot of people lived where they worked. A blacksmith tended to live next to the blacksmith kind of shop. Um, A baker tended to live next to the bakery and so on. So when they thought about the household, it included the broader socioeconomic kind of dynamics of the day as well. And so when the Apostle Paul lays out this framework, how does that tease out? And then we're going to see what this does. For the slave, he says, your real master is Jesus. The one you actually get to serve. The one who's actually overall, despite what other people may say, No one can stop you from serving Jesus. That's a radical statement. And then he gets to the master and he says, guess what? You're also slaves. (laughs) You don't have unlimited power. You don't actually own anyone. Everyone else who belongs to the body of Christ belongs to Jesus. And with that simple framing, he democratizes the whole church community. Everybody becomes a slave to Jesus. And he begins to sow the seeds of freedom. And this has three implications, okay? And so I'm going to walk through these fairly quickly. Three E's because I'm a pastor. Um, So here we go. Elevates, it eliminates, and it equalizes. So first, we see when he lays this out, it elevates, okay? Look with me at verse 5. What's fascinating is that the Apostle Paul addresses the slaves. Some of your texts may say bond servants. Once again, this is because in the dynamic of the day, this particular word could mean both things. It could mean someone who was captured in war and therefore was uh, you know, seen as property or someone who was a bond servant who had to sell themselves into slavery for a period of time to pay off a particular debt. But the fact that the Apostle Paul addresses them Other political codes or framings of reality or what the communal flourishing looked like would talk about slaves, never to them. Once again, we've seen this through each of the different parts and pieces as we've been walking through this. The Apostle Paul extends dignity to the ones that are usually invisible. And he says, I see you. And by the very fact of him addressing them first, he gives them that much more dignity and honor. He communicates their agency and their dignity. Again and again, the those who are invisible in society, the Apostle Paul sees because he says the gospel sees you and he actually elevates them by addressing them first. And you can imagine the master in that moment, the way that the Apostle Paul talks to this slave as if the master doesn't own him at all. 
The Apostle Paul leverages his spiritual authority by speaking directly to the slave rather than through the master to the slave. This is radical just by his very address. So first, it elevates and it, it raises those who are the lowest in society to a higher calling. You look in verse 6, and the Apostle Paul says that they are serving Jesus. They're actually servants of Christ. That doesn't mean that this human being who is their earthly curios, their earthly master, is now the representation of Jesus. No, no, no. Their earthly master may be deeply broken, deeply flawed, but nothing, no matter who that earthly master is, is going to stop them from being able to serve their heavenly master, Jesus. And so he elevates their status by saying, you are not just a servant of anyone, you are a servant to Jesus. And in the spots where nobody has control, you get to surrender. We'll talk about agency. And it may feel very foreign to us, but this was extremely liberating. And he says, you get to serve Jesus now. And then he gets to verse 8, and he talks about reward. Throughout Ephesians, this language of inheritance, we even sang about that today too. And be thou my wisdom, and be thou my vision, right? We sang about that. To know, as we see in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Your social location will dramatically impact how you hear that. As a slave, if your master's holding things back from you, treating you brutally, and you have no other recourse in broader society within a dictatorship where the gods are there supporting the powers that be, and you know that even if there's no earthly trace of that, when heaven comes, the Lord Jesus will indeed have your reward ready. No matter what else happens, no one can take your inheritance. You get to rest with extraordinary hope. To know that God is watching. And I know that Karl Marx, one of the most consistent atheists throughout history, a brilliant philosopher, who says that if there is no God, then really all is left is the will to power, forcing your way. Moral ethics are nothing more than a plaything to ultimately grasp what you want. Karl Marx would say that religion is often considered the opiate of the people, right? If you've heard that phrase, that's from him. The idea that it leaves people who should revolution, that should revolt, and it leaves them motionless. It's because he doesn't understand the gospel. Because actually what the Apostle Paul is giving here is a radical hope, an extraordinary vision that brings about the subversion of injustice in a way that is gospel-centric. Rather than leading to a consistent cycle of violence, destruction, pain. It's shaped in the form of a cross that often is very counterintuitive and foolish, the Apostle Paul says, to the surrounding powers and world. So he's laying out an extraordinary vision that elevates the ones that are often unseen. And this isn't new. You go back to Genesis chapter 16. Abraham and Sarah, right? This forefather and foremother of our faith. Someone who is counted to him righteousness because he trusted God, and yet he didn't always. 
God promised that he was going to give Abraham offspring, but he got tired of waiting. And the cultural ideals of the day said, have a slave, make her your wife, and have child through the slave in order to give to the primary wife. That was the cultural idea, not the biblical design. And he leaned into that, and he abused Hagar, and she was on the run because he finally had Sarah. Sarah was actually deeply abusive to Hagar. It was both Abraham and Sarah that were awfully involved in this injustice. And Hagar, running with her son in the middle of the desert, comes to a well, and there God finds her. And it's that name, the first name that God actually holds on to, that someone gives of God, that he holds on to of himself. And you are the God who sees, is what she says of him. A slave, run away, deeply abused by people supposedly of faith, who had not trusted God in that time. And yet God saw her. This has been the consistent refrain of the invisible throughout culture, throughout history, that God sees you. And he promises that he'll care for her. This is the consistent way of God at work in the world in the midst of so many broken people and what is. But not only does he elevate those who are often on the lowest rung of society, we also see that the Apostle Paul eliminates. So he elevates and he eliminates. And that there is no longer... No longer unlimited power for the master. You need to understand this. In that particular context, a master could exercise severe punishment upon his slaves. And then he, would, he could exercise extreme coercion or threats of violence. And I'm going to sell you to this one guy. And you think I'm bad? Oh, you have no idea how bad he is. And separate you from your family, isolation, and pain. And what does the Apostle Paul say in verse 9? Stop your threatening. <laughs> he goes at it, friends. Like this is a bold declaration to those who often felt like they had unlimited power. And the Apostle Paul puts a ceiling on what they thought was appropriate exercise of leadership. And then he goes down to verse, we see in verse 9, he calls them slaves too. Just remember, you have the same master, masters, do you see that? You have the same Lord, even though you are a Lord in that context. And guess what? He comes with zero partiality. He's going to come and he's going to approach. And so if you are approaching those whom you have power over with deep injustice, know you will give an account. You see, there is an elevation from below and there is an accountability from above. And now Jesus, think about this. They are remembering the gospel. They are coming back to who Jesus is and what he did and how he navigated the world. How does he navigate leadership? He says, don't be like the Gentile leaders who lorded over others. But then he washes the feet of his disciples, which is pretty radical just for a leader. But this is God become flesh, gets down to humans, and he washes their feet. The worst and the lowest job. And if you are a master and you hear that Jesus is the judge, you can't help but see through that particular rubric that if you have any power over anyone, you go with service. Not without clarity, not without leadership, but with service in the midst of it. 
And can you imagine, just think about this. You're the patriarch, so put yourself in that spot. Across this household code, wives have been addressed, children have been addressed, and servants and slaves have been addressed. But if you are the patriarch in the household, you've been addressed three times. You've been addressed as the husband, you've been addressed as the father, and you've been addressed as the master. There is no doubt in that moment, this gentleman's face might be red, he might have his face down, because he's probably sitting next to his slaves, sitting next to his children, sitting around his wife, and thinking to himself, why do you keep talking about me? Doesn't that seem familiar? Sure, you talk to them, you talk to them, but I keep coming up. Why do I keep coming up? With great power and great privileges that this patriarch had in the first century comes extraordinary responsibility. And no, I'm not just quoting Spider-Man. <laughs> Although it is a good axiom, is it not? Yeah. And so he elevates those of the lower class and lower status he eliminates the unlimited power that I'm sure felt like it kept sounding like a resounding drum for those who were leaders and in charge at that particular time or had responsibilities. But those two together, what it ultimately does, number three, is we see Paul's work and that he equalizes. You see, he comes with some reciprocity here, although it isn't symmetrical, meaning he talks to both parties frequently, right? but he doesn't give the exact same charges to each or commands. That's important because they each have a certain level of power, a certain level of responsibility in which they can exercise in their own agency. And so he comes with some unique dynamics. But what's so fascinating is when you look at this passage at first blush, you can say, man, he says a whole lot to slaves, but very little to masters. Aha, right? Here's an extraordinary rhetorical device. He gets through all of verse 5, 6, 7, and 8, speaking to servants. And then he gets to masters and he says, do the same to them. All of that I just said, same goes for you. And <laughs> stop your threatening. So actually he says more to masters if you look at the text than he says to slaves. He has more to say, actually, for those who are in charge in that particular context, not less. And if we don't read the text well, we can misconstrue that and think that the Apostle Paul had a ton to say to slaves, a very little, no, 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 no. Again and again, most of what he has to say is to those who have a responsibility over or with others. And you find what's truly astounding is that all of this, once again, is couched in verse 21. Don't forget this. The whole community is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes into the specifics. Think about that as a slave and a master sitting there. And the apostle Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence and fear for Christ. And think about this. It's, once again, don't take this out of context. Think of all of what the Apostle Paul has written up to this point. You are the beloved of Christ, whether you are slave or free. You belong to the body of Christ, whether you are slave or free. You are his, and the spirit dwells within you. The, the spirit of freedom, whether you are slave or free. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had nothing to bring before God, whether you were slave or free. But God brought you back to life, whether you were slave or free. And he's now made this new humanity, made up of all different multi-ethnic groups because of what he's doing across the world, whether you're slave or free. And all of this is building to this glorious crescendo and his new humanity with his glorious ethic shaped by the cross for our good in line with his brilliant design for us as human beings, whether you are slave or free. And so he sets the table for a family. That no matter your status, no matter your power, you look across the aisle and you see a brother and a sister. You see, the Apostle Paul says every Christian is actually a slave to Christ. We are under his authority. And when we rest under his authority and when all followers of Jesus recognize that, it actually elevates, it eliminates, and it equalizes in an extraordinary way. Now, I get to, in an art, kind of democratic society with our current ideals and framework and our cultural conditioning that feels like too little. And I understand that. But there is one more thing that I don't think we should miss, but it's not obvious. Once again, the more you study God's word, you find these brilliant tributaries and how they're interconnected. Because more than likely, with decent confidence, we can be fairly confident. That with decent confidence, you can be fairly confident. <laughs> Take that to the bank. That Onesimus was there. Onesimus. We see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, the Apostle Paul encourages, you know, those who are in Laodicea. So those who are receiving the letter um, to these Colossian churches, they're supposed to read the letter that's actually going to the Ephesian churches, and they're supposed to kind of swap these letters back and forth. You know, it was also in the midst of those letters, the letter to Philemon. And the letter to Philemon, if you, you're not familiar with that, is that Philemon was one of these guys, a husband, a father, a master, and Onesimus was his runaway slave who had found the Apostle Paul in prison. And what does the Apostle Paul do with his authority in that particular context? He writes to Philemon and he says, hey, you owe me a lot spiritually, don't you? And I know Onesimus ran away, but why don't you no longer see him as a slave, but as a fellow brother and free him on my account? leverages his authority to bring about the freedom of someone who was once enslaved. Now, I want you to imagine Onesimus is coming with these letters. The letter is read. And then they're eating a meal together, which was really common. And Onesimus starts telling his story. As a slave, you're thinking, is that what could be true of me too? Is this what the gospel could mean for me? As a master, you're thinking, wait a second, what is happening? <laughs> It makes some deeply excited and some deeply uneasy. And that is the way the gospel often does. Is it shakes some to make us uneasy when we're unbiblically comfortable. And it actually comforts some of us when we are unbiblically anxious about things that are not aligned with the gospel narrative. You see, the Apostle Paul knows all too well that much more, as we've seen across this, much more is caught than it is ever taught. And they see someone who was once enslaved, who broke the law, who ran away, 
And the Apostle Paul extends grace, leverages authority to bring freedom, and now encourages him to bring the letters and becomes an agent for the gospel. That teaches, friends, more than anything you can write down on paper. And here's the other wonderful thing. You look up in church history, we also have really good confidence that it is Onesimus who becomes the bishop of Ephesus. A former slave, freed by the gospel, no less, becomes the leader of the church. Don't miss this. And if you just go and then you pluck this out, or even as that slave master did, and he plucked out just certain parts and he twisted it to actually say that this is a good institution, that you ought to be content in this institution, and so things that are not anchored in the biblical text. If we rip it out, it becomes an extremely unjust document. But when you see it in the brilliance of the gospel and the nuance, the context, you begin to see the liberation and the seeds of abolition that the Apostle Paul laid there because of the gospel. You see, Aristotle believed that slaves were less than and that the patriarch needed unlimited authority. Not the Apostle Paul, not the gospel. A very different frame. Instead, laying out a family of brothers and sisters and seeing each other as equally slaves to Jesus. And this is why, friends, why chattel slavery in the antebellum period was so atrocious. Not just because slavery existed, but because of the very philosophy on which it existed. A very philosophy in which race was invented, mind you, not just as an idea of difference, but as an idea of hierarchy. That whites were superior, that people of color were seen as beasts of burden designed. It's in the historical documents. Because they are less than, shown in their skin color, cursed by God, some even justify, out of a distortion in a Genesis text. Therefore, determined to be slaves of the white man. And yet, this is nowhere in Scripture. And what was deeply atrocious is that many churches taught this, supported it, and furthered this heresy, bringing generations of deep destruction. Listen, Paul had no political power to bring about structural change. He could empower in the moment. But what's so atrocious is that many Christians leveraged their power and distorted the Apostle Paul's text to bolster an institution of oppression for generations. And there were many Christians who did not, to be clear. It's atrocious that Christians would abuse the text, but as we've seen, many people for various issues have abused God's word, including Satan himself, to further destructive ends or to pursue them. But there have been many Christians along the way, not as many as we all would hope, but still many, who didn't support the support the, the structure of slavery. And instead, you know what was their common refrain? Is this not our brother? Is this not our sister? Consistently, this was the refrain. Family, common humanity, a deeper biblical and gospel-shaped framework of seeing one another. And so they leveraged their authority and their voice 
They saw their battle, as we read in the text, not against flesh and blood. Don't forget this. Sometimes we disconnect this passage from what follows in verse 10 because there happens to be a different heading, which is not original to the text, but helps us kind of zero in on a theme. But this is meant to be deeply... We're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers and the rulers and the authorities. And someone to make that so exclusively spiritual that it's irrelevant. You have to understand the spiritual and the political were deeply intertwined in the first century. Think about this. Your dictator was considered a god. Spiritual political together. You cannot divorce that in the first century world. So whatever your argument is, what the apostle Paul probably meant was both. A philosophical framework that separated people and made some greater than or less than. And it became a philosophy, a worldview that deeply broke so many in our country and around the world. It's not exclusive to the United States, but as we speak as People in the United States, we speak to that specific iteration. But you know how thoughtful Christians wrestle through this? I want to just give you a couple examples. Chrysostom, third and fourth century, friends, okay? Long before the United States was even a twinkle in someone's eye, okay? Chrysostom, often spoken of as golden mouth, he says, society arrangements like laws made by sinners acknowledge these distinctions of classes. But we are called to accountability before the law of the common Lord and master of all. We are called to do good to all alike and to dispense the same fair rights to all. God's law does not recognize these social distinctions. If anyone should ask where slavery comes from and why it has stolen into human life, for I know that many are keen to ask such things and desire to learn. I shall tell you. It is avarice that brought about slavery. It is acquisitiveness, which is insatiable. This is not the original human condition. Remember that Noah had no slave, nor Abel, nor Seth, nor those after them. This horrid thing was begotten by sin. It does not come from our earliest ancestors. We pay our ancestors no respect by blaming them. We have insulted nature by this system. Note how Paul connects everything to the idea of headship. As to the woman, he says to the husband, love her. As to, the ch- as to children, he says to parents, you are to rear them in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. As to slaves, he can only say, knowing that you too have a Lord in heaven. In this light, be benign and forgiving. I love that. Third and fourth century, friends. Long before the United States even existed. You could look at William Wilberforce, who fought for the abolition of the slave trade to the detriment of his health, so dedicated, deeply seeing the schism between the Christian faith and this horrid practice. As well as he fought for the manners, he was deeply holistic, like we ought to be well with one another and lean into Christian practice in all things. A holistic man, who would have known? So Josiah Wedgwood leveraged a ton of his resources on his dishware and pendants to have this image of the common slave here in the United States. And on it, it says, am I not a man and a brother? Raising this question, constantly trying to raise the American consciousness that the one that they are brutalizing, selling and treating as property is not property, but a brother. Josiah Wedgwood, Harriet Beecher Stowe, The woman that Lincoln said is the little lady who started the war. The Civil War was not about states' rights in abstract form. Stop arguing that. I'm going to say it as a pastor. It's poor historical fashion. 
It was states' rights specifically about slavery. When we make it abstract, then we can talk theory all day. But we don't live our lives abstract. We live in the dirt, in the realities of the day. It was fighting for slavery and states' rights to choose that or not. And then, of course, there's Sojourner Truth who fought against slavery and then also stood with many who were oppressed by injustice. And on and on the list goes. And so as a slave of Christ, here's our call. Leverage your power to serve Christ's ends, Christ's way. Sometimes we get caught up in one of the two. Or I'm just, I'm, I'm about Christ's ends, but I'm gonna use the world's tools. You know, we've sat back too long. It's time for us to fight. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Or hey, we're going to go about Christ's way, but it may not lead us to Christ's ends. No, have a trajectory towards Christ's purposes, but do it in his way, which is always shaped by a cross. And great, you know it's wonderful? It will always end in an empty tomb. It may involve death and ours, not against other flesh and blood. Don't miss that. This is not the time in our culture, in our day, violence on both political extremes has been celebrated in ways that is completely anti-Christian. Instead, leverage your power to serve Christ's ends, Christ's way. And don't just get caught up in virtue signaling. <laughs> it's not like the Apostle Paul's from prison, like, virtue signal, virtue signal, right? Like, he is in chains, friends, for the purposes of the gospel. And here's what I want to say first. Slavery is still an issue. There are some 50 million people enslaved today. There are, due to population increase, more people enslaved today than there have been at any other point together combined in history. So may we not miss this. There's forced labor. There's sex slavery, human trafficking of broad and significant proportions. And if you want to engage someone, you can join the International Justice Mission, a deeply robust and theologically anchored organization that is doing some great work in awareness and empowerment. You can also engage Rehope, uh, an organization that our Leewood campus takes the lead on, who comes along survivors of human trafficking and provides housing for them and care. Another thing you could be doing is coming alongside single parents. Now, there, our Brookside campus hosted a conversation not too long ago where they had some law uh, enforcement officers there, and they asked, how can we help mitigate human trafficking. And one of, the law officer, one of the law enforcement officers said, hey, what you could do to go upstream is if you have a single parent, a single mom, a single dad with kids in your congregation or in your community, come around them. Because the moment they get vulnerable and they can't pay their rent, they reach out to someone and someone takes advantage of them. Or that parent has to work two jobs so these young kids are left alone and they get caught in online schemes where people are attacking them. So one of the most practical things you can do is come alongside single parents to help curb upstream human trafficking. But I say all of that not so that things can feel so big and so ominous that we constantly avoid or feel like, oh, I, I don't have margin for that right now or whatever. I do want you to hear that you have power every day too. Are you aware of the power you have, the agency you feel like you're on the lower totem pole, whatever that might mean, you have power from below. If you're an employee instead of the employer, 
If you're a child instead of the parent, if you're a spouse, the resources, the time, the energy, the concentration, your voice, all of that has actually been entrusted to you by God. Every bit of it. Are you a slave to Christ? Are you respectful towards those in authority? That doesn't mean you have to agree with everybody in authority, but are you respectful towards those in authority? Are you praying for your enemies if they happen to be those in authority? (laughs) That also is a very biblical framing of power. And even if no one sees you as you do good, as you seek to nurture good in your heart rather than letting bitterness and resentment and anger fester and rot you from the inside out. Ask who's guiding you? Who's sparking up these desires? Who's who's inflaming these longings? Who's your master at the end of the day? If you have power from above, beware. There are privileges for that. And we're not here to demonize power, but you need to understand there's greater responsibility the more power you have. Whether you're a boss, whether you're a parent or a community leader or a politician, are you a slave to Christ or are you a slave to your desires or are you a slave to your constituents? Who ultimately has the say over you? Who's your master? Does your responsibility reflect how Jesus, the Lord over all, while he was on earth, exercised his authority? Because no matter what power you have, we need to hear that if we are in Jesus, we are not our own. We belong to Jesus, and that is an extremely glorious place to be. Because the one who was truly free and had limitless power laid himself down willingly to die for us to make us free unto him. This is the logic. This is the framework of the gospel. We have been freed from oppression to service for the suffering servant, our master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And no matter where you are in life, that can spark hope, it can empower you, and it can even begin to set the trajectory of deeper freedom for Jesus rather than from him. God help us. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much even when we have limited power or limited agency, you tell us that we are never in a space where we have no agency and that whatever is going on in our life today, you never minimize our pain, but you remind us of our hope. And I pray, Lord, that here in the many different stories and contexts in this room, that today the gospel would meet us and empower us to surrender more to you and to sow sow no joy unto life and growing in all that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.